Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello, thank you for joining us for the USF College of Public Health podcast series on racism, health, and life. Our podcast from the Activist Lab is called Advocation Change It Up. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined today by one of our student advisory board members, Melissa Yu. So how are you, Melissa? I'm doing great. Excited to be here today. Great. The Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, you'll see all the educational programs we have, our boot camps, our seminars, our research on a variety of public health topics, our advocacy, and our work to assure that students have practice experiences in the community at the state and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a public health issue, and we'll end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. Also, I must add the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. Well, I can't think of a more important issue now than that of racism and its effect on our health and for that matter, our lives. This series features leaders in academia and the community about these topics. Today, my guest is Dr. Judith Scully, a professor of law at Stetson University and founder and co-director of the Social Justice Advocacy Concentration Program. She also is an advisor to the Alliance for Advocacy and Philanthropy that was established last year to create joint opportunities for advocacy between nonprofit organizations in Tampa Bay and the law school. Dr. Scully teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, trial advocacy, advanced criminal trial practice, as well as seminars related to race and American law and international human rights. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Scully. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the fact that you are doing such wonderful work with your students as well, um, getting them prepared to be full-fledged advocates in our community at large. It's a beautiful endeavor that you're engaged in. Oh, well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. I'm learning as much from them as they, I think, are learning from me and the things that we're doing, but I appreciate that. Well, first, I want to define structural racism for the listeners and go from there. As you know, this is the area we're focusing on for this podcast series. From the article from G and Ford for the Dubois Review, structural racism is defined as the macro-level systems, our social forces, institutions, ideologies, and processes that interact with one another to generate and reinforce inequities among racial and ethnic groups. Now, structural mechanisms do not require the actions or intent of individuals, because even if interpersonal discrimination were completely eliminated, these racial inequities would remain unchanged due to the persistence of structural racism. And and some examples of structural racism include segregation, different employment opportunities, legal issues, educational opportunities, healthcare, immigration, and more. So, Dr. Scully, you and I have discussed the role of racism 
And you talked about the law with this in terms of juvenile incarceration. Could you discuss with us your work in this area and some general concepts of yours around racism and the law? Um, certainly. Um, in terms of the juvenile issues, um, you know, how are juveniles treated in terms of their experience in school, in terms of their interactions with police, and in terms of their interaction with the court system? When we look at how juveniles are interacting with these systems, the school system, the court system, the policing system, what we see consistently is that black children um, mm -hmm. are treated much more harshly mm -hmm. than white children are. Black children are, um, I think, in many ways, just presumed to be suspicious and are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And they are denied an opportunity to really be seen as full-fledged children. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is that when children who are non-black, who, children who are white specifically, because even Latino children, brown, black and brown children are treated very similarly. Mm -hmm. White children are viewed um, more so through these systems as being innocent, quote-unquote, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but black children are really viewed with great suspicion and are considered to be, if not dangerous in the moment, dangerous in the future. Uh -huh. And so they're denied the opportunity to really make childlike mistakes. And they mm -hmm. are punished mm -hmm. harshly for um, things that in the past children would have, like in the school system, would have been sent to um, the teacher for counseling or right. would have been sent to an actual counselor yeah. right, when schools had counselors. Yeah. And at the very worst, you would be sent to the principal's office. But what we're seeing in terms of what's happening in our public school system right now, particularly those school systems that have a school resource police officer stationed in the school, mm -hmm. is that the children who make these mistakes or who engage in disruptive behavior but not criminal behavior are being referred to police officers for um, their behavior to be addressed. And how do police officers address behavior? They address behavior the way they're trained to address right. behavior, right? Which is right. through the criminal legal system for mm -hmm. the most part. And that's unacceptable. And we are seeing as a result of um, zero tolerance policies mm -hmm. in school mm -hmm. that black children are being um, scrutinized and focused upon in a way that white children are not. And as a result of that, we're seeing large numbers of those children being funneled into the juvenile justice system, as well as the adult criminal system. Um, and so, you know, when you're asking me about how does race impact juveniles, um, it impacts them in a particularly harsh manner, because once you're involved in the juvenile or the criminal legal system, right. uh, your record is tarnished. And that record carries with right. you, Follows um, you for the mm -hmm. rest of your life. Right. And right. it's also, you know, we're talking about health today as well. Right. When you think about what impact is um, harsh punishment and treatment like a criminal on a child has, well, what happens to that child is they begin to believe what they're being told. Sure. You are bad. You are criminal. You are incorrigible. We cannot help you. Your behavior is not redeemable. And they adopt that because they're more like sponges. They really are children. Right. right. And we're not right. taking into consideration the fact that these kids have um, great ability mm -hmm. to mature and to um, prosper and grow 
into very productive citizens if they are given the encouragement to do so. But instead, what they're receiving, rather than encouragement, is harsh punishment and um, isolation, which is really the worst thing that you can do to a child is to isolate them rather than to bring them in, nurture them, and help them grow. Right. And Dr. Scully, this happens early, right, in a child's life in the school. So we're not talking about high school, right? They get to high school and then all of a sudden this happens. This is all throughout the system, right? Right. I mean, we have seen in the um, Tampa Bay area news headlines that indicate that children as young as five or six are being handcuffed and taken away because of throwing temper tantrums. And that's exactly what I mean. When I say that children, black children, black and brown children are not being treated as children, mm-hmm. right? Why mm-hmm. would you handcuff a child for a temper tantrum, right? right? And what right. does that do to that child, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, the messaging that they're receiving about how, quote unquote, bad they are, how potentially criminal they are, is being reinforced by actions like that. Taking a small child, handcuffing them, placing them in the back of a police car, taking them to a police station, potentially locking them up, not necessarily in the Tampa Bay area, but, you know, I do a lot of research around this issue. And in Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, there was a ridiculous um, trainload of children, black children, oh being locked up in prison cells for things as simple as not having their uniform on, for things that they should have just received a warning or a discipline about. These kids were treated like criminals, and you're correct. We're not talking about high school students. We're talking about elementary school mm-hmm. age children mm-hmm. who receive this message so early on that it becomes difficult as they grow older to undo that messaging, to unlearn right. um, these horrible, traumatic experiences. And that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. We're talking mm-hmm. about trauma. Well, and we certainly know trauma and issues like that have an immense effect on people's health, right? As you're saying. So it's, it's yeah, it's not just the unfair incarceration and the bias associated right. with that, right? It's, it's how right, that child, punished. right, for being punished. Um, I know, Melissa, you have a question for Dr. Scully. Yes, I do. And I really like how you emphasize the impact of juvenile incarceration in youth, especially when it comes to school-to-prison pipeline. So my question for you is, how can we, knowing the harmful effects of the school-to-prison pipeline, reverse these zero-tolerance policies that result in this while ensuring that students are not deviating from the school's policies? Right, and I think it's a simple, thank you for that question, first of all. Um, what can we do, right, about changing right. the zero tolerance policies and um, reversing the school to prison pipeline, right, so that mm-hmm. we're using schools to educate, not to punish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, what we have to do, first of all, is to uh, indicate who are our to, to recognize who our allies are, right? Mm -hmm. Because in every environment, in every system, there are people who are looking at what's happening and thinking this is not right, right? Right. Right. So we need to identify those individuals and join in coalition with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that with zero tolerance policy, you can approach this two ways. It is a public policy, so it can be lobbied against in a very official way. Mm -hmm. Or it can be approached 
more from an administrative position, which Mm -hmm. is to say that we need to have administrators who do recognize the injustices of these policies and are willing to educate those that they supervise Mm -hmm. um, to do, to respond to problems in the school in a different way. What zero tolerance policies have done is it has um, really um, brainwashed people into believing and by people, I mean teachers and others in the administrative apparatus at schools. It's brainwashed them into believing that kids who misbehave need to be punished through um, school resource officers are to right. be punished severely. That right. thinking needs to be reversed, right? And so we need to begin to think about children who act out, uh-huh. not as problems, but as children in need. Right. So when you see a child misbehave, the question should be, what happened to this child? And how can I help this child adjust and behave in a better fashion that helps to grow and prosper the entire community? Right. Right. And so we need to be thinking about using techniques like restorative justice, Mm -hmm. where we actually talk to children um, and and adults as well about what happened, what went wrong, how can we remedy this situation, what can we do to support you in creating um, a better environment for you. Mm-hmm. But instead of doing that, what we're doing is just simply saying, we need to eliminate that child rather than viewing that child as a child in need, which mm-hmm. most often is the issue. Right. That, right. that child is not having some basic needs met in their world, maybe inside the school, maybe outside of the school, but we need to view children more holistically. We need administrators who view children more holistically and Mm -hmm. are able to provide the training and counseling that's needed for that entire system of the school to work to really um, hold children up rather than push them down and lock them out. Right. But, you know, the zero tolerance policies, though, Dr. Scully, um, if a school adopts them, but there's different treatment of those, right, is what you're saying also. So let's say a Caucasian child doesn't wear the uniform. That child is going to be treated differently than if an African-American child doesn't wear a uniform. So that's what you're saying, too, right? So, yeah, yeah. Zero tolerance policies aren't really zero tolerance. Right. right. There is still discretion that's being exercised yeah. as to who that gauntlet will fall down on when they choose to reach for that tool of zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. You know, I always ask this question uh, to all the guests on this podcast series is that, you know, we've known about some of these issues, structural racism, discrimination. We've known about them a long time. I mean, you know, lately they have surfaced because of different events in the United States. But in your opinion, how and why has the United States and the judicial system perpetuated this concept of structural racism? I mean, why, you know, we know it's ingrained, but has it been perpetuated by the systems also? Absolutely. I mean, and when you ask um, why has the United States um, judicial system perpetuated structural racism, I mean, we really have to think about the fact that this country started on a foundation of racism. There's no way around denying that, Mm -hmm. right? 55 white men drafted the United States Constitution and then implemented and interpreted that constitution in a way that provided unjust enrichment to white America mm-hmm. um, through slavery, through racial segregation, through, you know, more contemporarily incarceration, through inadequate education, 
um, through disparity and discrimination in pay and opportunity um, for paid physicians, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is how our country was built. So that's um, the answer to, you know, why? Why has this happened? This has happened because this is the foundation that this country was built on, and we have never really acknowledged it, nor have we tried to undo um, the damage that right. has been done mm -hmm. um, by our history, not just of slavery. This is definitely not just about slavery. This right. is about mandated racial segregation, um, and then um, with the ends of racial segregation, mandated legal segregation, the failure to do anything about the remnants of that segregation, right. either from um, you know, an economic perspective or you know, a social perspective, mm -hmm. we haven't done the healing work. Again, you're focused on health in this podcast, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. We are damaged in terms of our mental and emotional well-being in the United States because of our failure to honestly embrace the true fact of our history. Yeah, and, and as I said, we've known this for a long time. You know, I mean, we, we've known about the concept, and as I said, that these issues have come more to light now, but it seems like we would be further along than where we are. You know, right, I agree. I mean, we are obviously right now in a period of time where we are taking several steps backwards in mm -hmm. terms of racial justice and social justice in this country. Very recently, I'm sure you saw that um, um, the, the president of the United States indicated that he no longer wanted any sort of anti-racism training to be taking place at the federal level, right? Um, and that he wants to remove any recognition of anti-racism work mm -hmm. from um, schools as well. I mean, what does that say to you? If you are not anti-racist, what are you then? What are you in favor of? Racism? Right. right? And, and so the messaging is very nuanced, not quite direct, but it is, it is in our faces right now mm -hmm, that we mm -hmm. are definitely um, stepping back. We are, we are in retrogression right now. Right. We are, and, and the truth is that racial history, especially legal racial history in this country, has been like a series of waves. We go up, we go down. We go up, we go down. Mm -hmm. It has never really been um, a scale in which we are moving towards progress um, simply and clearly. We go up and we go down in terms of our progress. And right now we are taking several steps backwards. We're on the downward slope in terms of our interaction around racial justice and social justice right. and equity issues. I know that schools and universities, I know that even here in the College of Public Health, we're trying to take some steps to improve, you know, the situation. Um, right. One of the things we recently did, as we talked on another podcast, was we're no longer requiring the GRE as an entrance requirement um, for our programs, for our master's, our graduate programs. And because that test, as, as you probably know, um, being in academia, Dr. Scully, you know that that test really, I think, says more about your sex and skin color than about your intellect. So, um, and that's well, and been, yeah. for the LSAT, which is yeah. the law school, which you're, which you're test, familiar right. with, yeah. Right. Um, that test is more correlated with economic mm -hmm. issues than anything else, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, it really tells you, um, you know, who the wealthier students may be, right? 
uh, there's co- correlation with scoring high on the LSAT mm-hmm. in economic status. <laughs> well, and there... so unless we do something to recognize that that is actually a fact, we will reinforce um, the the disparities that already exist in our student body. Well, right? So we well, have sure. to pay attention, right? We have to pay attention to what these standardized testing um, tools are actually testing and, and um, what they actually tell us. Because if we want to have a more diverse and inclusive environment, um, those types of things have to be taken into consideration or we will reinforce the status Absolutely. quo that already exists and mm-hmm. we will become part of the problem mm-hmm. related to systemic oh, yeah. racial injustice. Oh, yeah. I always say we in academia are not innocent <laughs> when it comes right. to this. We have to look right. at ourselves as well. Melissa, do you have a question for Dr. Scully? I was going to respond to that mm-hmm. and say... I do think standardized tests are a huge issue when it comes to race in the the, um, educational system because it basically reflects who has access to resources Mm -hmm. that will allow them to excel in these standardized tests. And whoever has these resources will be able to get high grades, and these high grades will impact what school they get into, what program they get into, if they will receive scholarships. So it does has a huge impact. And that goes further on into impacting the entire circle of socioeconomic status, which consists of education, income, and occupation. And it all starts off at the educational level. So I really appreciate the steps that some universities are taking to remove the GREs for the master's program. Yeah, I think it was great. I, I think it was a good step. Um, the Association of Schools and Programs in Public Health you know, are behind this, and I, I, I really think that um, it, it's a good step forward. I really do. So, Dr. Scully, would you like to talk a little bit about the uh, concentration that you have, the social justice advocacy concentration and the alliance that you've started? Yes, absolutely. So the social justice advocacy concentration program was started about seven years ago with myself and Professor Bob Bickle um, as the initial um, founders and advisors of the program. And Mm -hmm. we tried to identify early on students who are in law school who really came to law school in order to use their legal skills to help the community and to help individuals who are otherwise um, pushed off to the side who don't have voices. And Mm -hmm. so our students are working in every field that you can think of, um, from the criminal aspect of the legal world to the civil aspect. Some of them Mm -hmm. are doing civil rights work. Some of them are doing... Um, criminal defense work. Some of them are doing reform, criminal legal reform from a prosecutorial perspective. Our philosophy is that social justice advocacy can be instilled in every environment that you work in. And Mm, so we also have students who are doing property oriented projects, Mm. right? Which Mm -hmm. we don't generally think of social justice with, but we are helping them to understand how property is distributed is at the basis of injustice mm-hmm. in this country as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And that you can take your social justice advocacy perspective and use it even in the corporate world because mm-hmm. corporate accountability is part of social justice, right? So right. 
we are trying to train our students to recognize that their skills are needed in every single possible realm related to the law. Mm-hmm. And what we do in our program is to help them choose courses that will provide them with that perspective. We try to get them out into the community to do pro bono, meaningful pro bono um, services. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to connect them with nonprofit organizations to do that work, as well as with law firms and government agencies. And we are really focused on the skill of advocacy. That's so great. Inside <laughs> and outside of the courtroom. Because when students come to law school, they generally think of advocacy in terms of being a litigator, being in mm-hmm. the courtroom mm-hmm. with arguments. Yes, that's important, but that alone will not shift the status quo. That's right. And so we, we really are pushing our students to think about how they can use their legal skills outside of the courtroom as well as mm-hmm. inside of the courtroom and how they can transfer those skills to community members as well. Because our goal as social justice advocates is to work ourselves out of jobs. Right? <laughs> we want to be able to right. help That's right. actually solve these problems, That's not just great. perpetuate them. And, and the legal profession is such an ally for us. You know, when we do our advocacy work, where we learn in the activist lab here, I mean, when you want to change policies or you want to change laws, I mean, the advice and guidance of the legal profession is absolutely critical for us because absolutely. we're not attorneys, you know, and as we approach this, um, we can learn so much um, from you and, and from the students you are, you're working with. And then you also have this nice alliance, which I really want to hear about. Yeah. Right. Well, the alliance is... Um really in the, the training phase. I like to think of it as we're flying as as we're building the wings. Yes, yes. I know <laughs> what that's like. <laughs> just launching off. So this is our second year of an alliance with the um, community, the Tampa Bay Community Foundation and uh-huh. um, the Community great. Foundation of Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. And we are um, actually, we created two fellowships for our law students to work directly with the foundation um, where they are being exposed to governance issues within nonprofit organizations and also looking at this um, issue of how are nonprofits funded, what is it that we need to do, what are the legal issues related to this, how can, once again, we as lawyers work in coordination with non-lawyers to really effectuate real change. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I just want to say exactly what you said earlier when I um, complimented you on doing the podcast. <laughs> you said you learn as much from the students oh, 100%. Uh, right, as you teach. Mm-hmm. And I think this is true as well for the alliance work that we're doing with the nonprofit world. The lawyers are there to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay? They are mm-hmm. not there just to teach. Yes, right. we have unique skills that can help in that environment, but we are there also to figure out how we can learn from the nonprofit world and Mm -hmm. the funders of the nonprofit world so that we have stronger collaborations that really do make a difference. And I think that's so important. You know, that's sort of boots on the ground experience for your students too, right? Yeah, Yeah. they're actually really out there. We have a program in the activist lab called Moolah, which is uh, more opportunities to learn uh, advocacy. And um, where I actually pair students with an agency and they work with that agency on their advocacy issues. You know, they work as partners. Right. And and that's been so great. We've worked with the Guardian Ad Litem program and, and oh, we're beautiful. working. Yeah. And they've they've learned so much through that. Much more, I think, always than what we can tell them in the classroom. 
right? Because Absolutely. you need to get out there. You need to experience it. You need to see what the real world is out there and like. So, so that's great. Um, so, Melissa, we've been talking a lot about um, advocacy and what we can do. Dr. Scully has discussed with us some things we can do for change. So, Melissa, tell us about the pulse of the students, if you will, um, on this issue. Um, many of my students in the activist lab are undergrads as well as graduate students. Do you think as that generation goes forward, you graduate, you're done, are you ready to be advocates for change? What are the students' feelings about this? I do think that this generation of students is ready to be advocates for change. We are tired of seeing the same stories on the news. <laughs> we are tired yeah. of the same things happening over and over and over again. We need more than just thoughts and prayers. We need change. And I do believe that this generation of students are ready to have their voices heard and make a difference. Yeah. And so what are some of the things the students are talking about to make a difference? Something's coming up in November that's probably important. Yeah, it's to vote. <laughs> yeah. That is the most important thing you can do. I cannot stress how important voting is. Vote for representatives that are actively engaged in these issues and will make changes to dismantle structural racism in our community. Right. And, and it's important, um, you know, people are all talking about the presidential election obviously coming up, but there's other elections that come up throughout the years, right, for uh, in the county, in the state. And it's so important for people to vote. School board. Right. You want to do something about zero tolerance. There you go. How schools operate. Pay attention to these school board elections. Really important because school board folks often go on to want to be county commissioners and they often yeah. want to go further. So that's kind of it's a the way. Launching pad. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. That is the launching pad. And so look at, you know, with, with social media these days, it's much easier now to find out about people and to find out about what they have voted for and what they believe in. So it's important to check these people out and to and to vote. I mean, I think it's a responsibility of citizens to get out there and vote. We were also earlier talking about the judicial system. Yeah. Our judges are elected, right? That's we right. Need have, we need to have citizens who are more aware of who they're voting for when it comes to filling the seats on our judicial bench. Yes. Because if we don't have a different mentality in terms of diversity and inclusivity on the bench, we're going to, again, reinforce what's already there, which um, is a lot of disproportionate um, negative impact on low-income people and people of color. Yeah, I think that's really true. The judges, so important, and you can find out a lot of information on the judges. I know that because in the la last election we had, there were some of them, and I, I had to find it, you know, find out how, what they believe in and how they've ruled and, and that that's sort of right. thing. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to say in the Pinellas area, the League of Women Voters is doing quite a good job yes, of um, they providing information about judicial candidates specifically. Yes. yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. The League of Women Voters, their uh, website and their information is always so helpful and so beneficial. So they just look them up to find information, right, right on these right. different individuals. So, Dr. Scully, what do you think? You think we're going to see some real changes in the future? What, what do you think right now we can do? We can vote. We can um, uh, address the zero tolerance policies. And I think just have a voice, right, when you see things that shouldn't be happening. 
you know, say right. something about it. But but what do you think? Do you think we're on a, you, you said we're on a downward spiral, but do you think um, things might be looking up in the future with more attention being Absolutely. paid? Absolutely. Good. Right? If yeah. you remember what I said, our history goes up, it goes down. Right. We will rise. Again. <laughs> there is no doubt about that. Um, and the way that we have in the past brought ourselves up from um, the downslope in, in our racial history, our racial justice history, is that we have organized, right? And so we're talking about advocacy today. Advocacy is only as strong as the people who come to the table. And so we have to begin to reach out to allies from other areas that we may not have worked with before. That's really true. We have true. to build our alliances. We have to nurture our alliances. We need to um, write op-ed opinions. We need mm-hmm. to be talking to journalists about how they cover these issues. We need to be out in the streets, um, and we need to be nurturing younger leadership to, to step forward as well. Because one of the things that we, we often overlook is the fact that um, the future really obviously belongs to young people, right? right. Always. Right. And they need to be at the table Mm-hmm. When decisions are being made about the future, they need to have opportunities to um, to develop their leadership skills and to take charge as well. And mm-hmm. I've noticed often that people who assume positions of leadership hang on to them for 20, 30, 40 yes. years, which prevents the nurturing and the, the mentoring. support right. and mentoring of mm-hmm. younger people. We have got to do our leadership um, responsibilities in a very different way than we've done before if we really want to get out of this current downslope that we're in. Right. I agree with you. Well, Melissa, do you have any parting questions or just comments for Dr. Scully? I do have a um, parting comment, but this is more for the audience okay. who are listening. Sure. So at this time, when structural racism has come into light again. It has been in our society for so long, but it has recently come into light due to the recent events that has been happening in society. We must also realize that structural racism is deeply ingrained in our society Mm -hmm. by the little things that we do. And so moving forward, we should also try to dismantle our own opinions and ideas about race by actively educating ourselves on how to be actively anti-racist. Yeah, very good. Thank you. That's true. Everybody has to look inside as well, right? Internally to how you think, how you feel, how you believe, how you're acting, right? So everybody has everything. Yeah. Yeah, everything starts with self. That's right. right. And, and then it extends out from there. Then it goes to family. Then it goes to social circle. And then it goes into the world. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. And so we do hope, obviously, with new generations, you know, in a brighter future. You know, my research is in trauma and injury prevention. And uh, I always say that, you know, it's going to be the future generation that's going to look back and say, I cannot believe they argued over that issue. You know, (laughs) you know, just like car safety seats, like I wasn't in a car safety seat because they really didn't have them when I was that young. But but now this generation, you know, they're they're going to put their child in a car safety seat. It's part of our fabric. It's part of our what we do now. And so I think that hopefully this will be the case for this issue as well, that someday we'll look back and say, I can't believe they were still arguing and talking about that. So when people are treated fairly, hopefully that'll 
That'll make all the difference. So thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. On behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab and our wonderful and informative guest, Dr. Scully, and our student co-host, Melissa, we thank you for joining us. And hey, keep listening. We have new segments coming soon for the podcast series on racism, health, and life. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback. We want to know how we're doing. So please let us know by emailing us at cophactivistlab at USF. So until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Hey, remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family. We're on all media, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And hey, when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.